Hi, I'm Kara Oakley. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, which is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So today we're talking to author Catherine Savage. We're going to be talking about a number of things, but one of the, the primary focuses of the conversation are going to be super fun sites. As a side note, I never even learned about super fun sites until college, and I really haven't heard about them since then. It was the exact same way. I never, uh, never even heard of the term until I was in college. Didn't, wasn't at all aware of them, even though, um, you know, I'd like, I grew up in Ohio and there are several in Ohio actually that, um, that I only became aware of after learning about them. Yeah. So if you, as a listener, don't know what a super fun site is, don't worry. Um, we're going to ask Catherine to tell us all about it. But after this, if you're interested to find out if there's a super fun site near you, please feel free to visit epa.gov slash superfund. That's spelled S-U-P-E-R-F-U-N-D and click on sites where you live. All right. So now we're going to go over and talk to Catherine and hear all about Superfunds. Catherine Savage's writing has appeared in journals including American Short Fiction, Ecotone Magazine, and the Virginia Quarterly Review. She's the recipient of the Academy of American Poets James Wright Prize and is the author of the debut lyric essay, Ground Glass. Catherine, welcome. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me here, Kara. Thank you for having me here, Susie. It's really great to be talking to you today. This is such a fascinating book and a fascinating topic, but I think it'd be really great to sort of start with an important definition. And so Ground Glass takes a deep dive into what Terry Tempest Williams calls the contaminated country. And so for our listeners who don't know what a Superfund site is, could you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. In simple terms, a Superfund site is a polluted place. And my debut is really looking at a lot of different factors that contribute to causing pollution and also what the environmental, physical, socioeconomic, and public health cost is of living near a Superfund. Um, a Superfund tends to be a place where because of industry, there is a lot of contamination in the soil, the water, and oftentimes particulate pollution exists at a higher concentrate in the air. I grew up in what's called a fence line neighborhood, um, sometimes also referred to as a sacrifice zone, because these are areas where owed to legacies of industrial contaminants, people who live immediately surrounding the fence lines of oftentimes still practicing industry, experience higher rates of asthma, certain cancers. And that was both my and my family's experience. And so it was something that I wanted to be thinking about and, and questioning really in the space of this book project. It was really shocking to me at the beginning of the book, you lay out some statistics. The, you said the 2020 EPA report um, using census data found that 200 million people live within three miles of a Superfund site or brownfield. That's really, really shocking. And most, I would think, wouldn't really know it, do they? No. And in fact, I didn't know it. And when I was going through the edit process, that fact was flagged as inaccurate during the fact check because I had been citing an earlier study 
that had um, a lower percentage. I believe that the study that I was initially citing was from 2017 and had um, a lower number of the populace living close to industrial contaminants, superfunds and brownfields. And over the space of writing and editing, that number had gone up um, because there was a new study that came out. And I think, I think Susie, it's an excellent point that you raise that to me, places that are deeply polluted are hidden in plain sight. I grew up next to a tar shingles factory and a big railroad switching yard, but it wasn't on my mind. It wasn't on my family's mind. And, you know, when we think about things like this that happen and that continue to happen, and for me right now, something I'm thinking about is the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. I think that it's very common and it certainly has been my lived experience to live near uh, trains and trucks and these legacies of industrialization and not necessarily have a very clear idea about what harm that might be causing to various ecologies and also to our bodies. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the the train derailment in Ohio that uh, that happened fairly recently. One of the things I was thinking about reading this book is something like that tends to get a lot of media coverage. Um, it, it's this quickly surfacing thing that has long lasting effects, but that so many of these super funds get far less attention. W- why do you think that is? I think that it's so many factors. I think one of the most pressing is structural inequity and a kind of systemic racism that contributes to the the way that neighborhoods in the first place came to be. Um, looking nationally at zoning laws, it's more often to have BIPOC folks living in areas where those neighborhoods are zoned mixed use or poor communities living in areas where there's oftentimes a railroad or a site of industry in in a residential neighborhood. And so I think that some of the reasons why places that are polluted are overlooked is because of structural inequities that exist and persist within the United States and elsewhere. Um, and I, th- I think an, a second reason through the space of researching this book is that it, it's just a really long stretch of time that places that are contaminated are contaminated So a place might have been a site of big industry for the better part of, you know, 1880 to 1970. And then the zinc mine, for instance, went bankrupt, moved out of town. And then you have this kind of instance of abandonment. The Superfund was established to deal with the cleanup and remediation of abandoned polluted sites. Um, The term brownfield oftentimes refers to a place that does have a history of contamination and a present condition of contamination, but is still in operational use or aspects of that land is still in operational use. The Superfund really is sort of there to to pay for the cleanup of these these big messes where the polluter kind of moved out of town. And then you have, you know, 10, 20 years later, I'm thinking about Pitcher, Oklahoma, which was a big mining town, and there was a lot of undermining and lead and zinc mining. And then they, you know, it came to be known some 10, 20 years after the industries left that that lead and that zinc was having 
a lot of health consequences for people who are living in, in present day picture. So I think another reason why it can be really hard to understand the cost and the health consequence of living near a Superfund in a brownfield is because there's just so much time that has taken place oftentimes between the source of contamination becoming, you know, kind of coming to be known, understood as having a causal relationship with symptoms that people may be experiencing. And then, you know, and then what to do about that. They're just huge conversations. But I, I think it's good ultimately when there is a kind of larger attention, I think, being paid, um, because the reality is that there are communities that are suffering health consequences because they live near industrial contamination that is not being cleaned up um, adequately. So I think I think that the attention is good. I think that keeping that focus is also important and ultimately having policy in place and new systems in place to address some of the historic inequities is is deeply important. Yeah, thinking thinking specifically about what you're saying about like systemic inequities around like who who lives in these areas. One of the things I thought was really interesting in your book is you include a lot of firsthand accounts from people who've lived in these in these heavily polluted areas. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your decision to have that testimony as a, as a big part of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for that question. I was really inspired by two books when I was really in a stage of deep research and drafting. And one is Muriel Ruckheiser's The Book of the Dead, a work of testimony and oral history. And another more contemporary book that I was reading when I was really struggling to understand the structure of what ground glass would be is um, Rising by Elizabeth Rush. And I was really moved in Rising by Rush's decision to include firsthand testimony. And that that book became sort of a, a map for me, kind of a roadmap into structure because it didn't feel right to me to be a kind of filter for experiences that I have not personally lived. And there are so many communities that have experienced exposure to contaminants that are outside of my lived experience, that the book as a way to hold a kind of chorus of perspectives, that felt really important to me. And once I came to understand the numbers and how many people do live near contaminants, it to me felt like an important choice to have there be a kind of critical mass of accounts in, in the book as many as it could structurally hold for the type of writing I was I was making over the space of the project as a whole. So much of what you're talking about in the book and, and these other folks are talking about is um, what you're calling body burden. Yeah. And that's such a, a powerful phrase and a powerful idea. Can you tell us a little bit about what body burden is and, and how it's um, not only impacted your life, but some of the lives of those that you've spoken with or that you you know? As I understand body burden, it is a term for the, the load of environmental pollutants that bodies hold. 
And my understanding is that body burden is maybe like the simplest way to say it is when, when I think about microplastics, for example, or the idea that maybe there's Teflon in a nonstick pan, and then I fry some eggs and then there's maybe a little bit of that, uh, kind of forever chemical, um, that stays in me. So body burden is, it is a term for basically what happens when bodies come into contact with a toxic substance, uh, and then there becomes a kind of accumulation. Um, there's a, a cumulative absorption and then excretion of that substance have processed through an individual. And I want to just also say that this is, you know, more or less the CDC's definition that I'm referencing, um, because this is not, this is something that I studied and became more familiar with during the space of writing, but I, I have a fairly, a fairly glancing depth of knowledge ultimately um, about how this works in terms of a kind of systemic um, when thinking about a particular person. For me, my understanding is that it's basically a kind of way to say that there's there's proof that when living near toxic substances, we do take them into our bodies. And there have been numerous studies that have shown, for example, what absorbing high levels of lead can do to a person. And one thing that I find really deeply troubling about the, the idea of body burden is that it can also be transmitted genetically. So certain toxic substances can be passed in breast milk, for example. And so the idea that you can have a toxic substance that isn't just, you know, being inhaled, let's say, while kind of, you know, walking through a particular neighborhood, maybe there's a factory and there, you know, there's a big recycling plant and there's something kind of being burned off. It's not just as if oh, the air smells bad. It's a bit uncomfortable. You know, maybe I'm going to experience a headache with body burden. It's more that coming into contact with toxins can really harm an individual and also their, their family, which I find to be deeply troubling. Uh, when I, when I encountered the concept of body burden, it in a way also felt like a kind of maybe of kind of permission to, to write about what I was writing about, because it was very clear to me that a violence had happened. And that even if I didn't understand exactly what my family had experienced, there was a, there was a relationship between the place where we lived and our bodies. And I, I was really curious in asking that question. And so thank you for asking about body burden. I find it to be a very fascinating concept and kind of terribly creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you talk quite a lot about the treatment and perception of cancer in, mm -hmm. in the book as well. And th there's, there's at one point you write, it's, it's an act of violence for a system to ask an individual to surmount by resolve what cannot be individually surmounted. And that felt like such, su such a beautiful way to talk about this attitude we have toward cancer and uh, terminology around like the idea of, of fighting it. Yeah. Um, could you can talk a little bit more about what you, um, what, what you were getting at in that sentence? Well, really, uh, 
Thank you for, for asking about that particular sentence, because I, I want to just really hype Anne Boyer's The Undying uh, as an incredible book that was really instrumental to my own thinking about how cancer is discussed and the idea of a kind of individualism in in the imaginary of cancer was something that I was thinking about quite critically through some of Boyer's incredible scholarship on on cancer, on cancer treatment, on the language of cancer treatment. I think that I was just really interested maybe that's not quite the way to say it. I was very aware that the conversations that I was a part of about my father's cancer treatment were very much um, extending to genetics, heredity, lifestyle choices, not so much environmental factors. And I felt a bit paranoid, you know, extending such questions to environmental factors. It, it seemed as if there was a kind of, you know, there wasn't a lot of encouragement, I suppose, to do that. And I, I did end up interviewing uh, oncologists, toxicologists. And, you know, I think that a lot of the reason why is because there can be a multitude of factors that contribute to whether or not a person will receive a cancer diagnosis in their lifetime. It's not siloed. It's not as if it's this or that or that. And proving a causal relationship between any substance and how that substance will be absorbed by a person. And then if that will or won't lead to any diagnosis is is very difficult to kind of prove and substantiate. There's a term called cancer cluster, which is a way to refer to neighborhoods where it can be pretty, pretty, it's been pretty well documented and it can be more or less shown that yes, people who are not related, who live in this geographic area near dioxin or creosote contamination, for example, their, their cancer diagnoses are connected most likely to this toxin. So it's not as if it's impossible to show and looking at cancer clusters, you know, that's a way to really kind of signal to geographic cancers, but it's really hard to show that. So I was just really interested in if it's, if it's nearly impossible to prove a kind of collective experience of place where you have people experiencing various symptoms and maybe sharing those symptoms, but the larger culture is not really affirming that experience. I just was really troubled by that and also really troubled by what that then meant for an individual. And I was thinking about how if I only were to see myself as tied to a kind of ancestry of genetics separate from place and separate from larger systems that could maybe be, you know, contaminating that place. It just felt like there was a lot that was maybe absent, uh, if that makes sense, or there were things I was looking away from. So it just, for me, in a way, like these questions, they, and the questions I was turning over in the book at large were about like, what am I looking at and what am I looking away from? And just because something is a hard, murky, unknown question, maybe it's still a question worth asking. 
And it sounds like in the process of writing this book, you had to ask a lot of questions. You've already, you know, demonstrated, and we've talked about this wide ranging body of knowledge you needed to access in order to like process and, and frame this story. So I'm really curious, aside from some of the books that you've named already, what was your research process like? Because again, it, it covers so much ground. Did you do most of your research before you started writing or did it sort of happen in tandem as more and more questions revealed themselves? I thought that I was going to do a lot more experiential research and a lot of the book was written during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I ended up having a lot of phone conversations, Zoom conversations, doing a lot of reading, and helpfully researching places that are industrial and to varying degrees, you know, more intended for business uses than than uses by people. Um, they're fairly empty. So I I would sometimes go to various super fun sites and brownfields and walk around. And so there was an aspect of doing a lot of in-person research, but it, it was a pretty extensive set of interviews and lots of reading that that was the bulk of the research, partly because during the time of the most extensive research, I was more or less just at home. We, we mentioned um, earlier that Ground Glass is a lyric essay, and uh, it's made up of of a lot of uh, short vignettes. You're, you're writing across a lot of different genres and forms. It's you know, there's, like Susie said, there's a lot of research that goes into it, but it's but there's 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 personal history and memoir as well. How did all the different genres that you that you and forms that you work in feed into this project? Thank you for that question. I really love to think about the relationship between form and content. It's probably like one of my favorite things to to be thinking about. I have a deep love for the short story and I have uh, an MFA in fiction writing. I write short stories. I love to read them. And I also have an MFA in poetry. And this book started actually as kind of a long docu-poem. So there was a there were different documents and I was looking at two documents very specifically and one was about their remediation of a place near my house. I I mean it, it sounds sort of odd to say but I once I started writing this book I came to realize that even though I've moved a lot I've always kind of lived quite close to places that are you know I've lived pretty close to like big railroads. Uh, I lived in Brooklyn and I was a couple blocks away from the Gowanus Canal, a super fund. And now I'm near uh, this place called Shoreham Yards, which is a very big, it's a 230 acre intermodal shipping yard. There's train traffic, there are big trucks, uh, there's a parking lot for all these shipping containers. And because this place has always been a site of industry for the last, you know, 100 plus years, there are sites within the 230 acres that are polluted. And so I, I moved into a house where I would receive mailers about the groundwater cleanup because the groundwater is deeply contaminated. And so the book began as a kind of docu-poetic in response to a lot of data points about groundwater cleanup. But it, you know, as our conversation opened, 
the more I started working, the more I realized there were, there was just a lot here that really needed a more kind of lucid language applied to it because some of these terms, I, I felt like they needed just their own definitions to exist within the form in a pretty clear way. I wanted to be able to explain what a super fund is and what a brownfield is and talk about the kind of reach of brownfields and super funds. So the form became increasingly essayistic as I was writing. And at the same time, it very much is grief work. And my experience of grief was that it was glancing and fragmentary and surprising and strange. And so to tilt the project in too much of a kind of reported space to have it really become a work of journalism, to me at that time, it would have erased some of the aspects of the book that were more connected to personal loss and grief. I wanted to stay close to a lyric for those reasons, because that personal loss was so important to, to the book, to me, and also having it be more of a lyric text. There were a lot of things that I realized at a certain point in the writing that that would make harder to do on the page. So I moved into a space of lyric essay to try to hold both. So we're going to just shift gears really briefly. Um, One of the things in your experience that really caught our eye was from 2014 to 2019, you volunteered with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop just so fascinating. So we'd love if you tell us a little bit about what you did with the program and and what that experience was like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to talk about the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. They are really incredible and do wonderful work. So the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop is a nonprofit in Minnesota, and they foster literary community inside Minnesota Correctional Facilities. They were founded in 2011 and their artistic director is incredible. Their artistic director is also a really wonderful nonfiction writer, Jennifer Bowen, who has really taken their work into, into so many, you know, so many spaces really both in and outside of Minnesota correctional facilities. They have amazing public programming. And I got involved because I was at that time working as a program manager at the Loft Literary Center, which is in a really gorgeous building in Minneapolis, the Open Book Building. And the Minnesota Center for Book Arts is also in the Open Book Building. And one of the things that I did, which was a really wonderful project to be a part of, was organizing the annual broadside competition. Each year, students who took MPWW classes submitted their writing across genres to a prize, and I worked with the competition judges to select a number of short works, works that could appear on broadsides, single pages, that would then be handmade into beautiful works of art by artists who were making broadsides at the Minnesota Center for Book Arts. So it was a really incredible opportunity to read wonderful writing and really see MPWW student work get this just gorgeous 
tactile presentation in the space of the broadsides. It was fun to collaborate with visual artists and the whole project was just a really beautiful collaboration. Um, I also, as a someone who teaches creative writing, I mentored student writing and volunteered with Minnesota with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop in in other capacities as well. But the the project that I that I did year after year and and was really beloved to me was being the broadside editor. I love hearing about things like this. You know, I feel like so often writers are are kind of like working on their projects in isolation. And then when we get a chance to kind of talk about some of the like community writing things that are that are happening all over the place, it's just it's really exciting. Absolutely. I feel like for me, you know, I, I know that, yes, it's true that if any writing is going to happen, I've got to sit down and do it. I sometimes joke with my partner, um, who's a poet, that if writing was actually just reading and talking to writers, <laughs> that would be like my favorite thing ever, because I pretty much mostly want to be reading and and hanging out with people who who love to read and write as well. So it's also just a way to say thank you for this conversation today. It's really wonderful to be in your company. Well, thank you so much for, for being with us, Catherine. We've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.